Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You'll also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. In this episode, I'm in conversation with Scott Schober, the president and CEO of Berkeley Veritronic Systems, which is a 50-year-old New Jersey-based provider of advanced world-class wireless test and security solutions. Scott talks about getting into the family business years ago and developing an interest for electronics by playing Atari games when he was in sixth grade. How one can learn by looking at and identifying bugs in other people's code and how some requests from customers triggered the idea of using cell phones to locate people that led to the development of a product that saved lives. And how satisfying it was to know that the product one creates has actually saved lives. And being at the convergence of hardware, firmware, and software has led to many innovations. And how he feel so strongly that using technology for good is very, very important. We also talk about using firmware as a basis for thwarting cybersecurity threats and why one needs to get into the mind of a cyber criminal to develop solutions to stop them. He talks about many other innovations and applications that are pretty unique and you must listen to this. And as usual, I asked him about career advice for people aspiring to get into cybersecurity. And finally, his brilliant tip on putting out misinformation about yourself on social media, why you should do that and how that helps. Don't miss that. Listen on. Hi, Scott. Welcome to the Software People Stories. Hi, great to be here with you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to a lot of stories. Cybersecurity is always very intriguing and interesting. And it touches all of us. So if we can start with your origin story and how you got associated with maybe software in general or cybersecurity in particular, we can take a yeah. conversation from there. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, working here at, at Berkeley Veritronic Systems, we're based out of uh, central New Jersey, right outside of New York City. We're celebrating 50 years old as a company this year, so we're pretty yeah. excited about that. Congratulations. It's actually, uh, yeah, thank you. It's actually a family business founded by my father, Gary Schober. He's still our CTO, but he's retired. And uh, I took over the company a number of years back running it. And uh, we've always done unique designs. People come to us with complicated problems. We try to provide them a design that that fulfills their needs and keeps it simple without making it too technical or or too complicated. Although we do build a lot of technical products, our expertise has always been focused on in niche areas. And in the past, especially 20 years plus, it's been wireless and how wireless crosses cybersecurity and security in general. So it's kind of neat to meet at those crossroads with different products and things that we've developed. And, and they're, they're kind of interesting solutions, which leads to, to me, the exciting part is that we get to interact with customers and, and hear some of the stories, how they used our products and how it's made their life better or saved their life or something of that sort. So this is the only job I've ever had my entire life. I started about sixth grade learning how to solder and learning about electronics all the way through college and and up to now. So uh, it's pretty exciting ride. And we've had to pivot and and kind of change as times change. Obviously, we were focused more on wireless test equipment back in the mid to late 
80s into the 90s. And then as standards in the wireless industry changed, we saw a lot of vulnerabilities in mobile phones and shifted and pivoted more towards some of the security and providing tools that will allow people to, to stay safe and companies to stay safe from, from different threats. That's interesting. Sixth grade. And you're one yeah. of the few guests we've had who's truly a second generation IT professional. Yeah. So yeah. what was the inspiration? Was it just a natural thing that you were interacting with your father and got into this? Or was there something else that was a trigger? I think being surrounded by when you grow up and back then in the, in the early days when the company was founded, when I was a little kid, it was out of the house. So mm -hmm. you go downstairs and that's the business. And eventually as workers got hired, the people would come into our home in the morning mm -hmm. and be working there all day and leave. So I'd come home from school. So you're surrounded by electronics, mm -hmm. surrounded by computers. And, and as a kid, I was big into games for, for a couple of years. My father uh, worked, this was in the 80s, the mid 80s or so at Atari and developing oh, games and technology. He was the, the vice president of the research and, and labs in New York City. Hmm. So that meant, meant what? That meant as a kid, I got to play games all the time and, and hmm. find bugs and work with Atari and visit in, in the city. Very exciting. And I think a lot of that helps mold you as a person being surrounded hmm. by technology. And I always encourage people when you're looking for a career, don't look for something that's just going to make you a lot of money uh, or, or it's flashy or this or that, or it's the trend. Find something that you love to do. Because when you wake up every morning and you, you get excited because you're challenged, you find fun in it. There, there's negative sides of my job, like every, every job, the people problems and things, but mm -hmm. the technology, the innovation, the challenge, that's a spark that keeps you going. And I think that's really important to have that right combination because otherwise you don't have happiness where, when you work. It's just for that paycheck. So I think that's really important. And one thing that I've learned over the years that keeps me going, that keeps me excited to bring, you know, build a talented team and keep people challenged here and make it exciting, make it fun because it's like a larger family. That's the way I, I try to view it. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned about you know, finding bugs. Because in the early days of my career, I think I learned a lot by looking at other people's code. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then yeah. trying to get into the minds of the person who wrote it and trying to see, you know, what probably was missed or you know, what doesn't work. How can it be better? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's excellent. And, and nowadays in the world of cybersecurity, there's bug bounties. People actually can work and make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year just looking at source code and trying to find vulnerabilities and bugs that could be exploited. Mm -hmm. And then they make it apparent to companies like Apple and Facebook and many others, they make a lot of money submitting these bugs that they find and a lucrative career. Yeah. So that brings me to a question on uh, how do you um, develop an eye for detail or eye for finding the gaps? Is there any... Usually for programming, we say, okay, this is, we go the positive path saying that, okay, this is a good algorithm. There's a data structure. This is how you do it, et cetera. But we don't really teach or we don't get into what could go wrong. Yeah. I think with, I always tend to focus from a level of uh, problem solution. For example, I'll give you a case or a story if, that, if that's okay. Um, a number of years ago, a lot of customers would call us and they saw that we developed wireless test equipment. They said, wow, you guys make some great wireless test equipment to make the cell towers work around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been doing that forever. Um, and that's important. 
But in the process of it, they say, you really understand how mobile phones work. Is there any way you could develop a tool that would help us to find people? People, what do you mean? Well, everybody's got a mobile phone. (laughs) Say somebody, a building collapses, they're trapped in a fire, or, or perhaps they're lost in the wilderness, in the woods, or in an avalanche. And we're thinking our brains are spinning and saying, well, we could develop a tool that could help direction find to locate a person. Hmm. Um, and, and over the year, trial and error, you try different things, what works, what doesn't, you know, changing the algorithm, so on and so forth. And that's a lot of the key to it and working with the direction finding antennas, techniques for all the, the, the third generation, fourth generation, and now fifth generation mobile phones as we know it. So we developed a product called the Wolfhound Pro. And last year I got a, a phone call, which I was very, very pleased to get. And they said that your Wolfhound Pro was used in a search and rescue operation with success. And I said, oh, really? And they sent me the article and I read it and and it lit my eyes up. And I said, wow. Mm -hmm. Basically what happened at the base of the French Alps, a family was walking, big snowstorm the night before, terrible avalanche, snow came down, the mother and children escaped in time. They ran. Mm -hmm. The father couldn't make it in time. He got trapped by a tree and he had 2.5 meters of snow over him. And when you have that much weight of snow, typically you don't have that long to survive. So instantly in the town, they sent out they grabbed everybody they could to do a rescue party and they got about 140 people and they walk lines back and forth mm-hmm. and they take sticks and poke in the snow to see if they could find them and listen, couldn't find them. They brought out dogs to sniff, but he was too deep. They couldn't mm-hmm. smell it. Mm-hmm. Somebody ran into their truck and they had one of our wolfhound pros and said, wait, I've got a search and rescue tool. Let me try that. They lit it up, started walking, beep, beep, beep. And they said, guys, come on back, start digging. I, I picked up a phone pinging here. They start digging. Sure enough, the man was there had some minor injuries and things, but he survived. So they, they declared it was a miracle. So then when I read that story and I talked to a reseller out of France, um, I felt good. I said, you know what? Here's technology we developed and we didn't give up. People mm-hmm. said, no, nah, that won't work. It's hard. It's too expensive. It's challenging. But we kept at it for years. We kept improving and improving mm-hmm. and improving it. Techniques, algorithms to scan, direction finding, uh, antennas, so on and so forth. Till we got to the point where we trained the industry to learn how to effectively use this tool to save lives. And then when you can, when you can kind of check that off on your box and say, wow, this tool has saved a life here. Now, what did it do? It opened obviously, obviously from a business standpoint, we saw a lot of units. We feel good. We're selling to the, the Red Cross around the world and many other organizations that have search and rescue teams in place. But more importantly, we're making a difference keeping people alive that may not have been saved. And to me, that that makes me very proud, um, not just of the product, but really as a company, as a family, we're doing this together. And that's important. Absolutely. As you narrated the story, I'm getting goosebumps. I don't know if you can see that. <laughs> really, it's uh, really making a difference. So are your solutions uh, a combination of hardware and software? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent point. Yeah. I look at us as a hardware company. We we do have uh, software programmers, obviously writing code for our products or support code or for calibration, for testing, or even for a GUI, the graphic user interface to operate it. But we're primarily a hardware company. So we're, you know, building circuit boards with microprocessors, DSP, FPGAs, Xilinx parts, uh, all of that hardware based. And then we'll typically focus our, our sweet spot is really the, the firmware, the code that goes into the processors mm-hmm. that allows us to process and develop these unique algorithms to do different things, again, tied with security and wireless. And that's where I think um, some of the, the value and the intellectual property is developed 
in a company such as this that a lot of companies don't get it exactly. So many people are very used to high level software where they could point and click and drag and that's all wonderful and that's needed. To me, that's important, but so is what's under the hood. And I think having that balance and understanding of both areas, the hardware and software. And then for us, the the, the exciting part is we also understand radio frequency, what makes wireless and phones Mm -hmm. work and Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. And then also the implications, the vulnerabilities and cybersecurity. So when you get at those crossroads, it gets pretty exciting with innovation because we could speak the language of a lot of different companies and understand how to bring that all together and develop safe, secure products that can deliver and make a difference. Yeah. So this triggers a lot of questions. Uh, yeah, sure. Let me start with some. What has been your experience in getting the typical software developers understand what it means to write firmware? Hard, still hard, <laughs> always has been, always will be. Um, part of what we do, and I, I call this the, the R&D, the research side of things that we really do is learning how to do it. And um, oftentimes I'll take something and I'll challenge the engineers. And honestly, most of the time they'll push back and say, no, Scott, that can't be done. I don't know how to do that. That's a dumb idea or who wants to buy it or this or that. So I go back to the the drawing board, do some research, try to understand it. And I'm educating myself, teaching myself in the process, but then I can pose a challenge to them. Uh, Again, a case in point, this goes back to 2012. Um, A little after that, we got a phone call. There was a terrible accident in um, Chatsworth, California. And this was with a train. And what ended up happening, an operator was on their mobile phone texting and they missed the signal crossings, crashed the train and 20 something people died, Mm. millions of dollars in damage because the train got derailed, went into a town. It it was tragic and and all the liabilities and lost lives and things were just a mess. That got the FRA, Federal Rail Authority, to uh, start instituting laws and said, hey, we need to implement technology on trains that can prevent distracted operators. Just like we hear about cars. We see that on the road. We get on the road and people are doing this and ah, they get into an accident. Well, we started developing stuff. And, and one of our first prospects called us out, LA Metro, huge rail company, rail and buses to develop some technology. We started developing it. We did some trials. It didn't pan out, didn't work too well because we couldn't get it in sync with the cameras and DVRs and the algorithm development. And I was kind of disappointed, but I didn't give up. And again, we kept pushing and pushing engineers for another another two to three years and developing the technology and the algorithms to the point where it almost seemed hopeless. We're never going to sell this. What are we doing? We're spending all this money and time. We can't solve this problem, but we just kept at it. And we got another call from, um, interestingly enough, not uh, not a passenger train, but rather a locomotive here in the States, one of the biggest. So ooh, this is interesting. They said, we want to, we heard you guys de- are developing technology. We want to talk to you and try one. Okay. We gave, we, you know, we sent one, they tried it out and said, Ooh, this has got promise. Let's work together and uh, try to see if we can pilot this and see if there's a chance that this technology may work. Okay. It was great. We were excited. Now suddenly they're trialing it. It dragged on for two more years, <laughs> two years of them <laughs> testing, trialing, and they bought one system, then they bought a few more, then they did a pilot of about 50, then a pilot of 200. And then all of a sudden they said, guys, guess what? We submitted this through FRA 
and we got certification, which means it's got kind of the stamp approved for to be used on locomotives throughout the United States. Fast forward to where we are today, we're on over 20,000 locomotives throughout the United States with our little black box. Uh-huh. And again, how do I feel? Even though I don't get to see it in action, they don't talk about it because it's kind of hush-hush that they're monitoring and our little cell detection device basically triggers a camera and DVR. Oh, okay. So if the operator picks up their mobile phone and starts texting, they get caught, disciplined, or, or, or terminated. Um, but again, it's saving lives. It's keeping hmm. people and towns safe. Because what happens if a train with 100 cars comes into town and it's got chemicals on hmm. and all kinds of other things and that person's distracted, the operator, and they crash, you could, again, have hundreds of people die, millions and millions of dollars in damage and health issues and things like that. So using technology for good to make a difference is very important. I don't see a lot of companies that are focusing on that. Many companies are focusing on only the bottom line, making money and surviving Mm -hmm. through things, which is important. We have to do the same thing, but making a difference, I think that's what's important. Yeah. And also, in terms of uh, security, we talk about a lot of security breaches and databases mm-hmm. getting stolen and all that. But the way you describe it, uh, aren't you at a position where initially it has to go through the hardware, whatever bits come in or go out? So is there anything happening in that space to detect intrusion or detect some abnormal activity at the hardware level? Yeah, absolutely. And you bring up a brilliant point. A lot of the the common companies out there, and I don't need to name any names, but we all know them, the the, the Mm -hmm. malware and virus checkers and all these other companies, they're they're hardcore software companies. They're selling you, in a sense, software that's scanning to look for something that's abnormal that they could flag and stop it. So maybe it's a virus or a malware that's a strain of ransomware. They want to stop it. But guess what? Of all of those software packages that people are buying that we're told we have to have on our computer, they stop about 20% of the threats, Hmm. 20%. What does that mean? That means 80% of the threats are still getting through to our computer, phishing attacks and all kinds Hmm. of other strains of malware to the point where we click on them, downloads, we're a victim of ransomware, or we have account takeover, our credentials are compromised, our credit card, our bank account, whatever the case may be. So by using hardware-based solutions, It could be a little bit more challenging, more expensive, but once it's implemented, a lot of these are high-speed FPGAs. So as the pipe comes into your company, it's actually processing this real time and doesn't have any latency, doesn't lag your your internet down or your your throughput or affect that. And rather, it takes any threats or potential threats and sandboxes them quickly, quickly. It throws these things that are questionable aside and lets the good traffic go through. And in part, a lot of these systems, these hardware-based boxes, they're using artificial intelligence, machine learning. Hmm. So they're connected, obviously, through the internet. So as threats are identified in different spots around the world, it's fed into a master uh, program that can now push notification out to all of these hardware-based boxes at these organizations, and it can be upgraded and improved. So it can identify what we typically call in the industry zero-day threats, where there's no known um, solution to it or, or software patch to fix it, well, now it can happen very quickly and near, near uh, immediately. It's identified here in India. Guess what? Now, boom, here's the patch to fix it here in the United States so that vulnerability doesn't get in. So the, 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 the systems are getting much more advanced, much smarter, much faster. Complexity when it's a hardware, software, firmware-based system and coordinating all of that with these kind of internet of things boxes, it, it can be a little bit daunting, 
but it's much more effective. And I think that's what's important. So understanding how cybersecurity has evolved over the past few years is very important from the early days of just regular antivirus software. Again, it has its place. I don't want to say it's useless. That would be a mistake. But I think it's important to understand where the future is, where the future threats are, and some of the solutions to, to adapt to that. The other thing is you'll notice a huge model. A lot of companies are offering monitoring services. And again, important. It's good to be notified if somebody's trying to, you know, compromise your, your information, this or that. But you can only go so far when you're alerted that your information's been stolen. Well, what do I do now? It's too late. So it's important to have something that's a little more proactive to stop the threat before it's already culminated to something else and the damage is already done. And, and I, a lot of this, I think I know more firsthand because I suffered through it. I was targeted as I educate people. They've targeted me. In my first book that came out, Hacked Again, really the, the story in short was I'm out there educating people about security. My customers and, and hackers and cyber criminals heard this and they said, we're going to take care of Scott and shut him up. So I have my credit card compromised, my debit card, my Twitter account taken over, received repeated DDoS attacks. So we couldn't do any online commerce. Uh, finally, I had $65,000 stolen out of our checking account, became a federal investigation, with paperwork, and time and money to, to understand and uncover all these things. So I kind of learned the hard way that even a cybersecurity company that has expertise in this field can be targeted and hacked. That tells me everybody has to be diligent and up their game to stay safe because it takes a lot of work just to deter the cyber criminals. Yeah, so as a CEO... Now, how do you, I don't know whether the motivation is the right word, or bring in the sense of innovation in a space that is yet unknown, because it is all about the future. How do you think ahead of the hackers and all that? How do you do that in your company? Well, I think I think of one part, maybe what's helped me a little bit when I mentioned early on growing up in surrounded by technology, surrounded by games at Atari. Um, the, the other side of the coin that I didn't mention is, as you start playing games at a young age, what did I do? These were the days before the internet. I would go on to, to bulletin boards and I would hack into passwords and copy games and pirate games. And that was exciting. So the challenge of kind of crossing the line and pushing the envelope helps you think like a thief a little bit, like a cyber criminal. So to your point, you have to get into their mind a little bit. You have to be kind of on the edge to understand and thinking ahead, how can, how can I compromise this system? Where's the weakness? Where's the vulnerability? How could this be exploited with nobody catching you? When you think like them, now you can develop a strong set of tools and you can innovate and find different ways to tackle the problem. Um, I, I'll, I'll give you a case in point, which is kind of interesting. I was talking with some of the engineers developing cell phone detection tools. I mentioned we developed that with our Wolfhound Pro and other things, and we sell to prisons and uh, government agencies and all these different uh, places. And the one common problem that kept coming up is people would say, well, this tool is great. When someone makes a phone call in prison, they're not allowed to have it. It's contraband. You guys can catch it. It's wonderful. But what happens is the prisoners learn about it and they take the battery out of the phone. Now it's not transmitting. Your tool is useless. You can't catch someone. They're absolutely right. So that, that bothered me. And I said, there's got to be a way to catch people that have a phone that's in an airplane mode or with the battery removed or not transmitting or anything. It's just quiet night with the phone off. How can we catch them? Don't know. Nobody knew. Everybody I talked to. No idea. No idea. No idea. So talking with some of the engineers, we were 
bouncing some ideas off. What if we approach it a different way? What's, what's unique about a mobile phone that's different about something else? And as we started to study mobile phones, we learned one thing. We heard that metal detectors are not good at detecting mobile phones. I found that very strange. It was like, why not? Well, there's not much metal in a mobile phone. So therefore, if you cup it by your midsection, if you put it down by your foot, you can get through most metal detectors of mobile phone without any detection. Interesting. So what's unique about a mobile phone? As we started digging in, we said, oh, wait a minute, here's something interesting. There are actually high-powered neodymium magnets inside of a mobile phone. Vibrator, speaker, and microphone. Ferris. What if we built some type of system that could do ferrous detection to pick up mobile phones that have no battery or the power off? Let's design a portal that focuses just on picking up ferrous material. So a ferromagnetic detection portal. Okay, put multiple sensors. And what we're simply doing is as a ferrous material passes between the portal, we look at basically X, Y, and Z uh, axis. And what we're really doing is we're just determining the disruption in Earth's magnetic field. If we see a disruption in Earth's magnetic field, that's a blip in our algorithm. Boom, we can detect not just that there's a ferrous material passing through, we could tell where on the person this threat is. And hence we developed a system called the Century Hound Pro. It took off. We've been selling this for the past few years. We sell this to government agencies, correction facilities around the globe. Just recently, this was as of last year, um, we developed, finished development. We just announced it this year in a press release. We developed a system called the Safe Hound that does something very similar, but it focuses on weapons detection, oh, okay. guns and knives that are ferrous. So this is really targeting sporting events. <laughs> this is part, you know, uh, large arenas where there's lots of volumes of people coming in and out that you don't want to have a threat of a weapon. In the United States, there's a lot of schools, middle school and mm -hmm. high schools, where kids are coming in with weapons. They're crazy, mm -hmm. and they have mass shootings. That's the type of market that needs this type of tools. So again, to, to your point there, we're kind of innovating by looking at problems, analyzing, doing research with problems, but then come up with a very unorthodox way to solve it. It's not always the, the way that you and I or anyone else would immediately think, well, if, if you're trying to detect this, just build a detector to detect that. No, sometimes it's something out of the box. And I think that's important when you're leading a company, when you're innovating, when you're developing, think outside the box and put everything on the table. If there's 10 different ideas, maybe one of those ideas has merit and you need to invest in each one to try and prove to yourself, no, that's not effective. That won't work. That won't work. Ooh. Here's an interesting idea. Let's try it. Let's spend some time. Let's, let's invest in this concept and idea. And that's what I look at it is. And when you invest in something, it has great results. And that's what opens the door to great products, great innovation. And uh, if you do that all well, then hopefully people will buy it. It's more, our business is more of a word of mouth type of business. Mm -hmm. People hear about it. They talk about it. There's a buzz that's created and in a sense, it kind of gets viral and that leads to ultimately sales and success. So does this approach of looking at problems differently and then trying to come up with probably approaches that have not been thought before or implemented before are useful in what we hear more of late of building honeypots, 
Yeah, I, I think so. I think that that's an important part of it because you, you you're applying things. Your thought process is is a little bit different there. Um, and, and with honey pots, what are you trying to do? You're trying to lure someone in, yeah. right? To, to to tease them or think mm-hmm. that they can get something, get something for free, or someone's not doing it. Um, I, I term a lot of that technology and some of the stuff that we're developing is, is kind of deception technology. You can fool somebody, lure them in like a honeypot or whatever, and pull them in to think that they can get in there or, or do something that's completely covert. And um, that fools them. I, I'll give you another crazy story. And this one I, I always love. Somebody approached us. This was a number of years back. And they, again, they were talking about some of our cell phone detection tools. And they said, you know, we've got a huge problem in school systems. We're administering tests. Every kid's got a mobile phone. They all cheat on tests. They take their mobile phone out. They do a Google search. They phone a friend or text them, get the answer, put their phone back in their pocket. We can't catch them. It keeps happening. And we're so frustrated because kids are good. They learn how to stick their hand in their pocket, in their sock, under the desk, and type on the phone without even looking at it. And then the teacher walks away, turns their back, they glance at the answer, boom, they got it. It's happening again and again. And this isn't just here in the United States. This is globally a problem right yeah so i started doing research again i said is there any way we can catch cheating students and our engineers are going what hey why would we want to try to catch cheating students there's no technology that'll help that i said well they're using mobile phones if we could find a way to detect a mobile phone and catch them we got a product we've dug in dug in dug in we took our our circuitry hardware software firmware is expensive to do direction finding it could be several thousand dollars per product so, so we need to develop a product that's under $500. And now we could sell it to schools and universities around the globe to solve the problem. But it has to be simple. Turn it on. It's ready to use and simple alert system. So we started prototyping, prototyping. And it was like anything else. It's a big brick. And we shrunk it down, shrunk it down, shrunk it down to it. Till now, it's the size of, of something small. We call it a pocket hound. Slips in your pocket smaller than your mobile phone, simple battery on it. And what it does is as you get near to any active cell phones, a student cheating, it simply vibrates and has some LEDs that light up for the signal strength intensity as you get closer to your target. It took off. We started to to sell in countries like down in Brazil. We have a, a reseller that we work with and they have a statewide test that they have to give everybody at a certain age in Brazil. Suddenly we're getting orders of hundreds and hundreds of these pocket hounds at a time. They're dispatching this to each classroom and the proctor of the exam is walking around with the pocket hound. The beauty of it is they put it in their pockets so none of the kids see it. So the kids are still trying to cheat and the proctor simply walks up behind them and goes, taps them on the back and say, you're out of here. We caught you. (laughs) And the kids don't know how they're getting caught because it's all done covert. (laughs) <laughs> so sometimes, again, it's not just the technology, but the innovation is the technique, how it's being used and how it's implemented. So a lot of the stuff that we do, develop an innovative product, train our customer base, educate our customer base, that empowers them to use the tool to their fullest, and then you're rewarded in a lot of sales. But again, so again, we can now brag, I guess you could say, or take credit, our tools are also keeping kids honest taking tests. So you're getting a more mm-hmm. accurate grade. And that's what's really important. And, and, and this happened a number of years ago. I, I was proud. We got a phone call from, I think it was CNBC at the time. They were doing a documentary on catching cheating students. 
And they came here and they filmed for a full day about our product, Pocket Hound, and how it's being successfully used in the classroom. Then they went to schools like Rutgers and other institutions throughout New Jersey and New York and talked to some of the professors and how they use different tools and technology to combat the problem of cheating students. So really exciting to be part of that from an educational perspective and helping to, to combat that problem. Yeah, it's again very interesting. I came across a company that I was associated with uh, last night, no, year before last, when the COVID thing uh, okay. suddenly was pre-COVID. So they had these wearable devices and vibration was one of the ways in which they would uh, have notifications. Yes. But with all yeah. the PPE, they said if they wear it outside, they were not getting it. So again, they had some very innovative technique, as you said, you know, yes. to make sure that uh, you know, the doctor or the paramedics are alerted, even though they are wearing these PPEs and still they're able to communicate. Yeah, 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 that, that, that's important. And again, there's an example where you have to kind of think outside the box. It r- reminds me of an interesting one. This was a number of years ago. If we think about uh, the artificial heart, it was a company up in, I think it was up in Massachusetts area. They approached us and said, hey, we're developing the first artificial heart. Mm-hmm. Like, artificial heart? We never heard about this. This was, again, many years back. Yeah. They said, but, but we're having some challenges to develop a heart to be able to test it and have wires coming out of somebody's body, it doesn't work real well. There's intermittencies, it's not healthy, you can get infection. So they wanted us to be able to develop a, a radio frequency link that would talk to the heart and also be able to allow it to you know, wirelessly charge outside and also talk and get status and do firmware updates, as crazy as that sounds. Hmm. So we actually developed the link, the circuitry that went in between the artificial, the first artificial heart and the box outside to help progress the development of that to where it is now today. And and that to me was kind of exciting because again, it's cutting edge, it's medical. You're making a difference, the innovation. Now we're not building the product, but we're really helping develop the concept and growing it to make it to the point where it can be an actual um, finished product that goes inside somebody's body to keep them alive. That to me is, is unbelievable, pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, so I didn't realize how long we've been talking, but yeah. I would definitely like to know, usually we ask for your guidance or advice from our guests, more mm-hmm. in terms of career choices for sure. people who are entering or starting their career, or some people who may be in their midlife wondering you know, what they should do. Because mm-hmm. from this conversation, what I hear is the need for thinking of solutions. Mm-hmm and thinking out of the box or thinking differently. So are these skills trainable skills or what are the kind of aptitudes that you look for? Yeah, I I think it's a combination of both. And and I do a fair amount of talking and I'm I'm actually on the foundation board for King University. Uh, I'm also alumni there. I'm also on the cybersecurity advisory board and also work with a lot of different universities. So I'll often go to universities and speak just to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I always think when you think about a career choice, really important, and I think I mentioned this earlier, to do something that you love to do. Yeah. That That's fundamentally uh, key. If you don't do that, you won't last at that career. And that's why you see so many people hopping. They're chasing salary. They're not chase, chasing passion. And I think understanding that and appreciating it that early on is important, but just as important as education is, and I do feel it's important. Um, it is as important to also take the hobby side of a person. In other words, what are your likes? 
if you like, like myself growing up, I love robotics. Um, I liked video. I liked electronics. I like breaking things and putting them together. So when you have those, that mixed skill, that lends itself well to computer science. Uh, it lends itself well to cybersecurity, to technology, to innovation. So as you start to see those things, it, if that's weaved in the fabric of what you do and what you like to do, it helps you excel at it. Because when I leave my job, it's not a nine to five job I have, of course, but when I go home, I'm still working what I'm thinking. Yeah. I'm thinking about problems. I'm thinking about solutions. I could be on a ski slope or with a fishing pole in my hand, relaxing, but my mind is always thinking, Ooh, here's another way to, this could be done better. This could be changed. This could be improved. There could be products and innovation and technology to make it easier for our lives to accomplish something. So again, my mind is not focused on the, the monetary side. How do you make money at doing it? But rather the solution side, the product side, the innovation. So I think as people are getting educated, whether it be certificates, whether they're self-taught, whether they go to a university and get an advanced degree, tying in and understanding, making that hobby part of your life that you enjoy your career, I think then you're going to have success, whatever it is you're doing. You could be the best cook in the world. Maybe you really enjoy going out to a restaurant and trying different foods. Then you go home and now you try to cook and learn about the ingredients and how you mix it and the taste and the interaction of it. That, that to me is innovating, not just going to school, getting a piece of paper that says, I got a two-year, four-year, 10-year degree, whatever. Anybody can do that. It just takes hard work and effort. You want to take it to the next step and make it part of your life and make it exciting and make a difference in your life. Yeah. With your example of cooking, I'm reminded of ratatouille, which says yeah. anybody can cook, right? Yeah. So that was one question which I didn't ask, but I think I got an answer, which is whether anything that we do for making systems secure, does it make it not only expensive, but less accessible for the non-digital natives? Yeah, you know, there's a fine line between that because... Sometimes when we overcomplicate things with technology, it, to some degree, it's more secure, but now it makes it harder for people to access. And, and when you can't access it, what happens? People don't use it. Yes. I, I always, always talk and I preach when I'm presenting about balancing. When you look at security, security, you have to choose over convenience. Too many things are complex. And then we say, well, yeah, that's secure, but you know what? It's not convenient. I'll just skip it. I don't want to create a long, strong password because I can't remember it. I don't want to use two-factor authentication because it takes too long. But once you train yourself to learn, you know, two-factor authentication, it's not that hard. It doesn't take that long. Once it becomes part of the process, you get disciplined and you learn how to streamline it. Yet it's a hundred times stronger than not using two-factor authentication. So once you discipline yourself to think security-minded, I think it's not that bad. And at the same time, when, when talking about using technology to solve the problems, sometimes things are too technical. For something that you could do very simply, um, it's hard to compete with a human is what I'm saying. We have artificial intelligence up here. We have brilliance up here that the best computer in the world can't compete with. They, computers are good when it's something that has to be done very fast, very boring, rudimentary things. They excel at we don't because we get bored quick. We're not challenged, okay. but you can't replace the artificial intelligence up here. If I have to do 
signature authentication, I could look at a signature and say, well, that's Mickey Mouse versus that's Scott Schober pretty quick. To develop algorithms and things to do that, it can be very challenging to do it 100% of the time. You can't compete with this all the time. So you have to choose the right technology for the right thing. I think that's important. The other thing I like to do too is sometimes mix up my secure cybersecurity posture with using a technique, I call it um, security by obscurity. Hmm. By making things very obscure and hard to access that only I know how to do it, it throws curveballs out there. Hmm. And I think that's important. So a little bit of misinformation, I'll go on social media regularly and put out misinformation about myself, about my hmm. company, about my whereabouts. So if somebody's trying to stalk or hack me again, it makes their job really yeah. hard. When I go on social media and set up an account, I have a different birth date for every social media account. Someone's trying to take out credit in my name. They call the bank and they say, oh, hi, I'm Scott Schober. They're pretending and here's my birth date. 12, 12, you know, 1974 conversation over because that's not my birthday. I put out false information to throw them a curveball. So there's a lot of things that we can do out there. They're simple to do. They just take time. They don't take any money. But it's kind of security by obscurity. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an important fact that sometimes people underestimate. We're too truthful. I, I give you another example. Um, when you're setting up your bank account, what do we typically, uh, you know, you got your login credentials, username, password, and then what do you often ask? Security challenge questions. They'll say, what, what high school did you attend? And am I going to honestly say, I attended Edison High School? No. That's an opportunity for me to be dishonest or use disinformation. And I could technically use password one, two, three, four. That would be a hundred times more secure than putting my actual high school in there. Because anybody can go on Google, do a search and find out what high school Scott Schober attended. Again, security by obscurity. So sometimes, again, thinking outside the box, even in cybersecurity, can do wonders to keeping you more safe. That's really, these are interesting tips and very useful. Never thought about it that way. So on that note, Scott, uh, thank you once again for taking the time and sharing these wonderful stories. Thank you for taking the time and having me on. Thank thank the listeners out there, too. And I I hope that everybody can, can stay safe. Thanks. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people's stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.